Section Four of Michael Kohlhaas by Heinrich von Kleist, translated by Francis H. King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At nightfall of the third day, with his little troop, he rode down the toll-gatherer and the gatekeeper, who were standing in conversation in the arched gateway, and attacked the castle. They set fire to all the outbuildings in the castle enclosure, and, while amid this outburst of the flames, Hers hurried up the winding staircase into the tower of the castellan's quarters, and with blows and stabs fell upon the castellan and the steward, who were sitting half-dressed over the cards. Kohlhaas at the same time dashed into the castle in search of the squire Wenzel. Thus it is that the angel of judgment descends from heaven. The squire, who, to the accompaniment of the moderate laughter, was just reading aloud to a crowd of young friends the decree which the horse-dealer had sent to him, had no sooner heard the sound of his voice in the courtyard than, turning suddenly pale as death, he cried out to the gentlemen, "'Brothers, save yourselves!' and disappeared. As Kohlhaas entered the room, he seized by the shoulders a certain squire, Hans Tronka, who came at him, and flung him into the corner of the room with such force that his brain spurted out over the stone floor. While the other knights who had drawn their weapons were being overpowered and scattered by the grooms, Kohlhaas asked where the squire Wenzel Tronka was. Realizing the ignorance of the stunned men, he kicked open the doors of two apartments leading into the wings of the castle, and, after searching in every direction throughout the rambling building and finding no one, he went down, cursing, into the castle yard, in order to place guards at the exits. In the meantime, from the castle and its wings, which had caught fire from the outbuildings, thick columns of smoke were rising heavenward, while Sternbald and three busy grooms were gathering together everything in the castle that was not fastened securely and throwing it down among the horses as fair spoils. From the open windows of the castellan's quarters, the corpses of the castellan and the steward, with their wives and children, were flung down into the courtyard amid the joyful shouts of hearse. As Kohlhaas descended the steps of the castle, the gouty old housekeeper, who managed the squire's establishment, threw herself at his feet. Pausing on the step, he asked her where the squire Wenzel Tronka was. She answered in a faint, trembling voice that she thought he had taken refuge in the chapel. Kohlhaas then called two men with torches, and, since they had no keys, he had the door broken open with crowbars and axes. He knocked over altars and pews. Nevertheless, to his anger and grief, he did not find the squire. It happened that, at the moment when Kohlhaas came out of the chapel, a young servant, one of the retainers of the castle, came hurrying upon his way to get the squire's chargers out of a large stone stable, which was threatened by the flames. Kohlhaas, who at that very moment spied his two blacks in a little shed roofed with straw, asked the man why he did not rescue the two blacks. The latter, sticking the key into the stable door, answered that he must surely see that the shed was already in flames. Kohlhaas tore the key violently from the stable door, 
threw it over the wall, and, raining blows as thick as hail on the man with the flat of his sword, drove him into the burning shed, and, amid the horrible laughter of the bystanders, forced him to rescue the black horses. Nevertheless, when the man, pale with fright, reappeared with the horses, only a few moments before the shed fell in behind him, he no longer found Kohlhaas. Betaking himself to the men gathered in the castle enclosure, he asked the horse-dealer, who several times turned his back on him, what he was to do with the animals now. Kohlhaas suddenly raised his foot with such terrible force that the kick, had it landed, would have meant death. Then, without answering, he mounted his bay horse, stationed himself under the gateway of the castle, and, while his men continued their work of destruction, silently awaited the break of day. When the morning dawned, the entire castle had burned down, and only the walls remained standing. No one was left in it but Kohlhaas and his seven men. He dismounted from his horse and, in the bright sunlight which illuminated every crack and corner, once more searched the enclosure. When he had to admit, hard though it was for him to do so, that the expedition against the castle had failed, with a heart full of pain and grief, he sent Hurst and some of the other men to gather news of the direction in which the squire had fled. He felt especially troubled about a rich nunnery for ladies of rank, Erlebrun by name, which was situated on the shores of the Mulde, and whose abbess, Antonia Tronca, was celebrated in the neighborhood as a pious, charitable, and saintly woman. The unhappy Kohlhaas thought it only too probable that the squire, stripped as he was of all necessities, had taken refuge in this nunnery since the abbess was his own aunt, and had been his governess in early childhood. After informing himself of these particulars, Kohlhaas ascended the tower of the castellan's quarters, in the interior of which there was still a habitable room, and there he drew up a so-called Kohlhaas mandate, in which he warned the country not to offer assistance to Squire Wenzel Tronka, against whom he was waging just warfare, and, furthermore, commanded every inhabitant instead, relatives and friends not accepted, to surrender him under penalty of death and the inevitable burning down of everything that might be called property. This declaration he scattered broadcast in the surrounding country through travelers and strangers. He even went so far as to give Waldman, his servant, a copy of it with definite instructions to carry it to Erlebrunn, and place it in the hands of Lady Antonia. Thereupon he had a talk with some of the servants of Tronka Castle, who were dissatisfied with the squire, and, attracted by the prospect of plunder, wished to enter the horse-dealer's service. He armed them after the manner of foot-soldiers, with crossbows and daggers, taught them how to mount behind the men on horseback, and after he had turned into money, everything that the company had collected, and had distributed it among them. He spent some hours in the gateway of the castle, resting after his sorry labor. Toward midday, Hurst came, and confirmed what Kohlhaas's heart, which was always filled with the most gloomy forebodings, had already told him. Namely, that the squire was then in the nunnery of Erlebrunn, with the old lady Antonia Tronka, 
his aunt. It seemed that, through a door in the rear wall behind the castle, leading into the open air, he had escaped down a narrow stone stairway which, protected by a little roof, ran down to a few boats on the Elba. At least Hurst reported that at midnight the squire in a skiff, without rudder or oars, had arrived at a village on the Elba, to the great astonishment of the inhabitants, who were assembled on account of the fire at Tronka Castle, and that he had gone on toward Erlebrunn in a village cart. Kohlhaas sighed deeply at this news. He asked whether the horses had been fed, and when they answered yes, he had his men mount, and in three hours' time he was at the gates of Erlebrunn. Amid the rumbling of a distant storm on the horizon, he and his troop entered the courtyard of the convent with torches which they had lighted before reaching the spot. Just as Waldman, his servant, came forward to announce that the mandate had been duly delivered, Kohlhaas saw the abbess and the chapter-warden step out under the portal of the nunnery, engaged in agitated conversation. While the chapter-warden, a little old man with snow-white hair, shooting furious glances at Kohlhaas, was having his armor put on and, in a bold voice, called to the men-servants surrounding him to ring the storm-bell. The abbess, white as a sheet, and holding the silver image of the crucified one in her hand, descended the sloping driveway and, with all her nuns, flung herself down before Kohlhaas's horse. Hers and Sternbald overpowered the chapter-warden, who had no sword in his hand and led him off as a prisoner among the horses, while Kohlhaas asked the abbess where Squire Wenzel Tronka was. She unfastened from her girdle a large ring of keys, and answered, In Wittenberg, Kohlhaas, worthy man, adding in a shaking voice, Fear God, and do no wrong. Kohlhaas plunged back into the hell of unsatisfied thirst for revenge, wheeled his horse, and was about to cry, set fire to the buildings, when a terrific thunderbolt struck close beside him. Turning his horse around again toward the abbess, he asked her whether she had received his mandate. The lady answered in a weak, scarcely audible voice, Just a few moments ago. When? Two hours after the squire my nephew had taken his departure, as truly as God is my help. When Waldman the groom, to whom Kohlhaas turned with a lowering glance, stammered out a confirmation of this fact, saying that the waters of the Molde, swollen by the rain, had prevented his arriving until a few moments ago, Kohlhaas came to his senses. A sudden terrible downpour of rain, sweeping across the pavement of the courtyard and extinguishing the torches, relaxed the tension of the unhappy man's grief. Doffing his hat curtly to the abbess, he wheeled his horse, dug in his spurs, calling, Follow me, my brothers, the squire is in Wittenberg, and left the nunnery. The night having set in, he stopped at an inn on the high road, and had to rest here for a day, because the horses were so exhausted. As he clearly saw that with a troop of ten men, for his company numbered that many now, he could not defy a place like Wittenberg. He drew up a second mandate, in which, after a short account of what had happened to him in the land, he summoned every good Christian, as he expressed it, 
to whom he solemnly promised bounty money and other perquisites of war to take up his quarrel against Squire Tronka as the common enemy of all Christians. In another mandate, which appeared shortly after this, he called himself a free gentleman of the empire and of the world, subject only to God. An example of morbid and misplaced fanaticism which, nevertheless, with the sound of his money and the prospect of plunder, procured him a crowd of recruits from among the rabble, whom the peace with Poland had deprived of a livelihood. In fact, he had thirty-odd men when he crossed back to the right side of the Elba, bent upon reducing Wittenberg to ashes. He encamped with horses and men in an old tumbled-down brick kiln, in the solitude of a dense forest which surrounded the town at that time. No sooner had Sternbald, whom he had sent in disguise into the city with the mandate, brought him word that it was already known there, than he set out with his troop on the eve of Whitsuntide, and while the citizens lay sound asleep, he set the town on fire at several points simultaneously. At the same time, while his men were plundering the suburbs, he fastened a paper to the doorpost of a church, to the effect that he, Kolhas, had set the city on fire, and if the squire were not delivered to him, he would burn down the city so completely that, as he expressed it, he would not need to look behind any wall to find him. The terror of the citizens at such an unheard-of outrage was indescribable, though, as it was fortunately a rather calm summer night, the flames had not destroyed more than nineteen buildings, among which, however, was a church. Toward daybreak, as soon as the fire had been partially extinguished, the aged governor of the province, Otto von Gorgas, sent out immediately a company of fifty men to capture the bloodthirsty madman. The captain in command of the company, Gerstenberg by name, bore himself so badly, however, that the whole expedition, instead of subduing Kohlhaas, rather helped him to a most dangerous military reputation. For the captain separated his men into several divisions, with the intention of surrounding and crushing Kohlhaas, but the latter, holding his troop together, attacked and beat him at isolated points, so that by the evening of the following day, not a single man of the whole company in which the hopes of the country were centered, remained in the field against him. Kohlhaas, who had lost some of his men in these fights, again set fire to the city on the morning of the next day, and his murderous measures were so well taken that once more a number of houses and almost all the barns in the suburbs were burned down. At the same time, he again posted the well-known mandate, this time, furthermore, on the corners of the city hall itself, and he added a notice concerning the fate of Captain von Gerstenberg, who had been sent against him by the governor, and whom he had overwhelmingly defeated. The governor of the province, highly incensed at this defiance, placed himself with several knights at the head of a troop of one hundred and fifty men. At a written request he gave Squire Wenzel Tronka a guard to protect him from the violence of the people, who flatly insisted that he must be removed from the city. After the governor had had guards placed in all the villages in the vicinity, 
and also had sentinels stationed on the city walls to prevent a surprise. He himself set out on St. Gervais's day to capture the dragon who was devastating the land. The horse-dealer was clever enough to keep out of the way of this troop. By skillfully executed marches he enticed the governor five leagues away from the city, and by means of various maneuvers he gave the other the mistaken notion that, hard-pressed by superior numbers, he was going to throw himself into Brandenburg. Then, when the third night closed in, he made a forced ride back to Wittenberg, and for the third time set fire to the city. Hearse, who crept into the town in disguise, carried out this horrible feat of daring, and because of a sharp north wind that was blowing, the fire proved so destructive and spread so rapidly that in less than three hours forty-two houses, two churches, several convents and schools, and the very residence of the electoral governor of the province were reduced to ruins and ashes. The governor, who, when day broke, believed his adversary to be in Brandenburg, returned by forced marches, when informed of what had happened, and found the city in a general uproar. The people were amassed by thousands around the squire's house, which was barricaded with heavy timbers and posts, and with wild cries they demanded his expulsion from the city. Two burgomasters, Jenkins and Otto by name, who were present in their official dress at the head of the entire city council, tried in vain to explain that they absolutely must await the return of a courier who had been dispatched to the president of the Chancery of State for permission to send the squire to Dresden, whither he himself, for many reasons, wished to go. The unreasoning crowd, armed with pikes and staves, cared nothing for these words. After handling rather roughly some councillors who were insisting upon the adoption of vigorous measures, the mob was about to storm the house where the squire was, and level it to the ground. When the governor, Otto von Gorgas, appeared in the city at the head of his troopers, this worthy gentleman, who was wont by his mere presence to inspire people to respectful obedience, had, as though in compensation for the failure of the expedition from which he was returning, succeeded in taking prisoner three stray members of the incendiary's band, right in front of the gates of the city. While the prisoners were being loaded with chains before the eyes of the people, he made a clever speech to the city councillors, assuring them that he was on Kohlhaas's track, and thought that he would soon be able to bring the incendiary himself in chains. By force of all these reassuring circumstances, he succeeded in allaying the fears of the assembled crowd, and in partially reconciling them to the presence of the squire until the return of the courier from Dresden. He dismounted from his horse and, accompanied by some knights, entered the house after the posts and stockades had been cleared away. He found the squire, who was falling from one faint into another, in the hands of two doctors who, with essences and stimulants, were trying to restore him to consciousness. As Sir Otto von Gorgas realized that this was not the moment to exchange any words with him on the subject of the behavior with which he had been guilty, he merely told him, with a look of quiet contempt, to dress himself, and, for his own safety, 
to follow him to the apartments of the knight's prison. They put a doublet and a helmet on the squire, and when, with chest half bare, on account of the difficulty he had in breathing, he appeared in the street on the arm of the governor and his brother-in-law, the Count of Gershaw, blasphemous and horrible curses against him rose to heaven. The mob, whom the Lanskinets found it very difficult to restrain, called him a bloodsucker, a miserable public pest, and a tormentor of men, the curse of the city of Wittenberg, and the ruin of Saxony. After a wretched march through the devastated city, in the course of which the squire's helmet fell off several times without his missing it, and had to be replaced on his head by the knight who was behind him, they reached the prison at last, where he disappeared into a tower under the protection of a strong guard. Meanwhile, the return of the courier with the decree of the elector had aroused fresh alarm in the city. For the Saxon government, to which the citizens of Dresden had made direct application in an urgent petition, refused to permit the squire to sojourn to the electoral capital before the incendiary had been captured. The governor was instructed, rather, to use all the power at his command to protect the squire just where he was, since he had to stay somewhere, but in order to pacify the good city of Wittenberg, the inhabitants were informed that a force of five hundred men, under the command of Prince Friedrich of Meissen, was already on the way to protect them from further molestation on the part of Kohlhaas. The governor saw quite clearly that a decree of this kind was wholly inadequate to pacify the people, for not only had several small advantages gained by the horse-dealer in skirmishes outside the city sufficed to spread extremely disquieting rumors as to the size to which his band had grown, his way of waging warfare with ruffians in disguise, who slunk about under cover of darkness with pitch, straw, and sulphur, unheard of and quite without precedent as it was, would have rendered ineffectual an even larger protecting force than the one which was advancing under the Prince of Meissen. After reflecting a short time, the governor determined, therefore, to suppress altogether the decree he had received. He merely posted, at all street corners, a letter from the Prince of Meissen, announcing his arrival. At daybreak, a covered wagon left the courtyard of the knight's prison and took the road to Leipzig, accompanied by four heavily armed troopers who, in an indefinite sort of way, let it be understood that they were bound for Pleissenburg. The people, having thus been satisfied on the subject of the ill-starred squire, seemed identified with fire and sword. The governor himself set out with a force of three hundred men to join Prince Friedrich of Meissen. In the meantime, Kohlhaas, thanks to the strange position which he had assumed in the world, had in truth increased the numbers of his band to one hundred and nine men, and he had also collected in Jensen a store of weapons with which he had fully armed them. When informed of the two tempests that were sweeping down upon him, he decided to go meet them with the speed of the hurricane before they should join to overwhelm him. In accordance with this plan, he attacked the Prince of Meissen the very next night, surprising him near Muehlberg. In this fight, to be sure, he was greatly grieved to lose Herse, who was struck down at his side by the first shots, but, embittered by this loss, in a three-hour battle, 
he so roughly handled the Prince of Meissen, who was unable to collect his forces in the town, that at break of day the latter was obliged to take the road back to Dresden, owing to several severe wounds which he had received, and the complete disorder into which his troops had been thrown. Kohlhaas, made foolhardy by this victory, turned back to attack the governor before the latter could learn of it, fell upon him at midday in the open country near the village of Damaro, and fought him until nightfall with murderous losses, to be sure, but with corresponding success. Indeed, the next morning he would certainly, with the remnant of his band, have renewed the attack on the governor, who had thrown himself into the churchyard at Damaro, if the latter had not received through spies the news of the defeat of the prince at Muehlberg, and therefore deemed it wiser to return to Wittenberg to await a more propitious moment. End of section 4